Our scripture this morning is the second psalm, and it's in your bulletin. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. And you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Omari, for leading us well. Um, I've been encouraged just even sitting up here. Uh, He he kind of already preached, so I I feel like I don't even need to. I can just uh, close in prayer. Um, uh, So thank you, Omari. My name is Matt Howell. I'm the, um, I don't know what I am here anymore, an intern, I guess, still. I used to be the uh, youth director. Um, We've been here for about three Little, a little less than three years, and my wife and I, uh, as, as Omari alluded to in his prayer, have been called to uh, Appalachian State to do RUF uh, college ministry there. So we're, we're packing up and leaving here in a few weeks. And um, so I just want to take a minute at, at the front end of, of, of this time, since I have the, uh, uh, the microphone, is, is essentially to thank you guys. Uh, we have been... Um, we have been loved very well by Christ Central, and I know some of you don't know me, have never met me, uh, but I, I lump you into the Christ Central package and just and say thank you. Y'all have um, your ministry to us has 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 transformed us. God has used this church uh, to change us in deep and profound ways. So, so thank you, thank you very much. You will be dearly missed. We're only two hours up the up the mountain, and so we we hope to come back and visit often and. Although my wife wouldn't want me to do this, but y'all are welcome to come and visit us as well. Um, we have one guest room, um, <laughs> so let's look at uh, let's 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 look at Psalm two. As as Georgia mentioned last week, Psalm one is sort of the entrance gate into the rest of the uh, the Psalter. It's sort of the uh, the opening door into uh, looking at the the whole 150 packages of the of the psalms and psalm 2 functions in the same sort of way it just sort of opens you up and actually originally a lot of the early manuscripts that scholars have originally have psalm 1 and 2 together it was originally they think one psalm that for whatever reason in our our current form of it kind of has split it in two uh so we're looking at sort of this part two of the same thing essentially and giorgio set up last week that psalm 1 introduces us to uh Two spiritual categories, spiritual categories of, of the wicked and the righteous, and it, and he kind of showed that there's a lot of overlap, and the, the, the division is murky, and there's a lot of uh, connection between these two spiritual categories. And Psalm 2 takes these two categories and, and plops them right in the middle of history. 
And so you look at how this thing plays out in real time, in real space, with real people like you and me. I don't know if you picked up on the, uh, the theme of, of, uh, of this worship service. I just kind of picked it up myself. First song that we sung, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Crown him. Confession and assurance, Almighty Father, Sovereign Ruler. Uh, the second song we sung, All Creatures of Our God and King. Next song we sung, uh, the second verse, the last line down there at the bottom left, Christ laid aside his crown. There is a, uh, a theme of kingship in this service today. And Psalm 2 is all about kingship, all about God as king. Richard Pratt, who is a pastor in uh, the same denomination that Christ Central is a part of, he's made this really interesting observation about the Virginia state flag. I don't know if, you, don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, I've never really paid attention to it, but I looked it up online and it's legit. So he, uh, he, he says it's this picture, it's this uh, uh, drawing of a man lying dead on his back. And out beside this man is a crown kind of tipped over off to the side laid askew. And and towering over this man is a woman with her foot on his chest and a spear in in, in her hand. So you're kind of getting the visual. She's towering over him like this. And written in Latin kind of around this picture is sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. Virginia does not like kings. And it's a reflection of America. We do not like kings. We have declared our independence. We have a declaration of independence. We do not want uh, top-down authority by, with someone who has absolute power, who just happens to be wearing a tiara at the moment. You know, we, we are not a fan of kings. Our whole country was founded on the idea of getting away from kingship. And Richard Pratt, uh, he jokes that if somebody comes over here and tries to assume authority with kings, then we, you know, we sick our women on them because, you know, they... His joke, not mine. Um... <laughs> But, but, but we in 21st century America, uh, uh, you know, are not alone. The, the, the issues of Psalm 2 is the exact same thing because Psalm 2 is written 3,000 years ago and it's painting the same picture of this basic impulse that we just don't like kingly authority. We don't like it. And so uh, Psalm 2 presents us with a series of snapshots that, that unfold this picture of uh, this basic impulse that, that our country breathes and that the people of Psalm 2 are breathing. And I know if you've ever seen the movie Memento, you know this guy, he's carrying around all these Polaroid pictures because he has the uh, short-term memory malfunction and he has all these pictures of uh, people he's met and, and uh, things he needs to remember. And he writes down at the bottom little uh, things to help him remember what it, what it is he's looking at in the first place. And that's uh, some, this is kind of the way that I've conceptualized how to organize Psalm 2. It's just a picture of Polaroid snapshots with little things written at, at the bottom of them. There's three of them, I think. And the first one is uh, a picture that you could write at the bottom, rebellion. Rebellion against the king. Let's look at uh, the first three verses again. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. First three verses give us this opening picture of this faceless, 
crowd that is gathering and uh, conspiring and plotting against uh, the Lord and against His anointed one. And the words there, uh, you think it means something like they're, you know, a very emotionally calm and kind of calculating, brainstorming, plotting, like it's uh, Ocean's Eleven or something. They're kind of in the background drawing up strategy plans. But the, the, the words there are much more aggressive. Uh, it really means something more like raging and uh, growling and snarling, or you know, obviously uh, not happy. They are gathering together like, and it sounds like they're animals, raging against uh, the Lord and His anointed one. Okay, what, what's, what's that all about? What, what, what's going on there? Well, to really understand what, what Psalm 2 is talking about, you have to get an idea of... Uh, the governmental picture of the Old Testament, which is uh, basically that it was a theocracy, which you had the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and you had God as their king. You had a heavenly king uh, enthroned in heaven who's ruling over his people. He's given them the law, the Ten Commandments. He's given them uh, laws. He's the source of authority ruling over them. But he also has a earthly, visible, tangible, physical, earthly king. And at this point, it's King David. You know, King David of uh, David and Goliath, David. And so he's sort of the uh, physical, earthly representative of God's kingship. There's an interesting connection. We'll even see in a little bit that God calls him son. He, he, he adopts him as his uh, you know, own child. There's a family connection. And I think an interesting uh, and helpful way to kind of uh, think about what's going on here is to picture David like a, a, a television set. He's uh, transmitting the signal that's, that's coming from somewhere else. There's a, a source somewhere else that he's physically, tangibly transmitting. You know, the, uh, the show Lost or uh, Dancing with the Stars or whatever y'all watch is not, is not contained in the actual box. The box is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's coming from somewhere else, either the Internet or plugged into the cable company or wherever it's coming from. I don't know technology, but it's coming from somewhere else. And so that's the same sort of picture. David is the box, the vessel that is transmitting the, the rule that's coming from the source. And the source is in heaven. God's enthroned in heaven. And so here's the picture. You have this crowd of tumultuous, angry, raging people against the king in, on earth and the king in heaven. And so here's what they're saying. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. You know, this is a, a uh, this is language of rebellion. Let's get out from under their chains. Let's uh, the rules are too restricting. It feels like it's bondage. Let's burst the chains. Let's get out from under it. We don't like being told what to do. Your laws are too restricting. You're too strict. This is uh, 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 hampering what I want to do. It's it's uh, conflicting with my desires. So let's burst. Let's uh, break out from these. Uh, uh, tyrannical, their tyrannical oversight. And this is really the great tragedy of human history. Because God rules on the basis of who He is. His laws are a reflection of His own character. And we know from Scripture that God Himself is good. And therefore, His law is good. His rules are good. His, his kingship is good. That's why in the Bible you have actual laws in the Old Testament about giving part of your harvest uh, to the poor. Give your resources away. This is a rule. This is a law. 
You have uh, laws in the Old Testament about welcoming in foreigners and, and, and tangibly being hospitable with love and care and compassion to these people. This is uh, God's law. His kingdom is established on the basis of charity and on mercy and on compassion, on justice. And so when uh, the impulse flares up to scrap God's law and to do what uh, uh, rebellious people want to do, this unfolds into all of the evil that you see on the television, that you read about in uh, CNN.com, that you read in the newspaper. This is what, this is what explains genocide. This is what explains uh, sex trafficking, predatorial lending. It's the impulse that says, I do not care about what God says. I want to do whatever I want to do to get the power, whatever, whatever meets my needs, whatever satisfies my cravings, whatever puts cash in the bank for me. This is the impulse that, that fleshes itself out into all of these evils that we see on the television and around us. But if we're honest, and I think Psalm 2 is inviting us to be honest, is that uh, this basic impulse pumps through our veins as well. This is not just uh, uh, something out there, as Giorgio said last week. It's not, it's not them, but it's also us. This impulse is a, is a picture of us. I remember when uh, I was little, I was on a plane with my dad. I don't know, I can't remember where we were going, but I had the window seat, and uh, he was sitting next to me, and on the little armrest, you know, they have all these buttons, and there was this really interesting button that had a drawing of essentially a stick figure. I was like, Dad, what's, you know, what's the deal with this button? And he says, don't push that. That, that alerts the flight attendant to come over and check on you. Uh, just don't push it. So now what do I want to do more than anything else in the world? Push that button. So as soon as he turns his head, I push it. And uh, it's actually one of the, the, the more stupid uh, acts of rebellion because I'm immediately exposed that I, I rebelled because she's coming over to us. I, and I actually, I told Catherine this story yesterday, and she said, not only is that um, uh, one of your more stupid acts of rebellion, it's pretty, a pretty dorky act of rebellion. <laughs> and who, <laughs> that, that was the um, flagrant uh, rebellion of my childhood. It was pushing a button on a, on a thing. I've done much worse. But, uh, but, you've, but you understand the basic impulse. As soon as somebody tells you, you can't do this, you want to do it. Have you ever wanted to take out the trash? You were planning on taking out the trash, and then your roommate or your spouse or someone asked, hey, can you take out the trash today? And now you don't want to anymore? I don't want somebody telling me what to do. Uh, and it comes down to control. I want to be in control. I don't want laws hampering, cramping my uh, desires. I want, uh, I want to be able to call the shots. We have this basic impulse that we want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to be restricted. We love the kingdom of God. We love when, when the king himself talks about uh, the kingdom in terms of forgiveness and love for the outcast. But we disregard and ignore what he says about our sexual ethics. We love when the king talks about the kingdom of God being a, uh, uh, creating a counterculture where, where races that have historically been at enmity with one another come together under the banner of love and are united uh, under the gospel itself. We love that here at Christ Central. But we hate and disregard and ignore what the king says about giving away our money in, in sacrificial and hard ways. We love the king, the kingdom of God, when he's talking about uh, love and, and charity for the disenfranchised and the needy. 
But we don't really like what he says about serving, serving our church and signing up for nursery and Sunday school and roadies and sacrificing our time and our energy and our resources. And so we just disregard those aspects of his kingship. And when we do this, when we pick and choose the parts of his kingly authority that we agree with and that we like, and then we disregard other parts that we don't like, what we have essentially done is, is, is uh, domesticated him and, and managed him and shaped him into a God of our own liking. And of course we like him. He's simply a reflection of our own desires. He's simply us. And so when he's, when he's been created and domesticated like that, a God in our own image, he can't have authority over us. We have authority over him. We get to call the shots and he does it. And therefore he can never be challenging. He can never uh, uh, go up against the grain of, of something that you already naturally and, and uh, originally felt and thought in the first place. If, if we have not been challenged by God, if there's not been something in your heart that says, I do not want to do this, then we have not really related to him as king yet. We are still in the driver's seat. We still have the authority, and he doesn't. And so this, this opening snapshot of Psalm 2, this, this picture is really just a self-portrait of us, that we at some level, at some point in time, have looked at his kingship, have looked at his law, has looked at, we've looked at his rule and have said, you are too strict, or this is crazy, there is no way I'm doing that. Or you do not get a voice into this area of my life. You do not get a say at this part of my heart. This is closed off from you. And Scripture has a word for that. It's called rebellion. And so this opening snapshot is a picture of us. We are uh, rebellious. So the second snapshot, what what is the second snapshot? It would be reaction. How does the king of kings react to this? Well, let's read. Here, here it is in verse, uh, in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The way that the one enthroned in heaven, the way that he reacts is, is he laughs. Uh, is, uh, it's a word that, that means mock, it, mocking. It's a, a word used of... Uh, the way that children joke around and kind of uh, nag on each other. It's, it's, it's uh, God laughing at this rebellion. It kind of reminded me of uh, the Cosby show line, the old school, you know, when he's talking to Theo, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. You know, like, you, you've really got to be uh, uh, crazy to think that this rebellion is actually going to accomplish something. Did you think I, I, you think I didn't know about this? You think this is actually going to work? You're going to overthrow the king of kings in heaven itself? And so this is this, uh, is this uh, response, this reaction of mockery. It's not the typical picture that we get of God, but it's there. He, he's, he is so secure, he's so uh, utterly established and okay with who he is that any threats uh, he's able to just kind of laugh at. Like, it's not, it's not going to overthrow me. But then we get this other, even more uh, uh, troubling reaction. Of the king, and we, and we just read it in verse uh, five that he rebukes them in his anger. In the original uh, language, it literally reads, "He speaks to them with his nose." It's a very uh, interesting way to talk. I've never tried to speak to anyone with my nose, but uh, 
it's, it's, it's an expression. It's a colloquialism that means, uh, it, it kind of pictures God as a, as a bull with steam spraying out of his nose. There's white hot fury. God is not happy with this situation. That there has been an, an assault against his character and therefore he is uh, angry. And, and in the midst of this erupting anger, he says in verse 6 that he installs his king on Zion. Uh, essentially, uh, Jerusalem. He has put his king down and inaugurated his king to handle this business. He's not happy with the situation. He's not happy with rebellion. And so, uh, at this point in the, in the psalm, he kind of steps back and passes the mic to David. And so, in verse uh, 7, David is now speaking. And he says, uh, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Remember that connectional familial link, that, that, uh, that uh, connection between David and God, this is it. But if you'll know, um, in the Old Testament, David functioned like a, like a movie trailer. As he was sitting on the throne ruling over his people, uh, this was just a glimpse of the real show that was to come. Because all throughout the New Testament, they're looking back at Psalm 2 and saying, this is really about Jesus. This is really about King Jesus. David is really just a prototype of the real greater David to come. David was essentially functioning as a uh, kind of the junior varsity anointed one, which means uh, uh, Messiah or Christ. He was the junior varsity Christ that played at like six o'clock to gear up for the real varsity Messiah to come out. He was the uh, the uh, opening band to kind of pump the crowd up for the headliner King Jesus to come. And so, and so this is a picture of of King Jesus. God's uh, eternally begotten Son, as we say in the Creed. Not the adopted Son, but the eternally begotten Son. Always has been God's Son. He is the one that, that God is going to send to earth to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, to install His King in Zion on, on tangible soil in the Middle East, to come and to do something here. But this is a picture uh, that is, that is uh, not what we would have expected. Because in verse uh, 9, as we look at, 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 at God's reaction of installing King Jesus, it, it is a picture of judgment. Look at it in verse 9. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The people who are in rebellion against the King of Heaven are pictured like a clay pot. And King Jesus is, is, is coming down to smash it to pieces. Not the typical picture that we get of, of King Jesus. This is, this is the picture uh, and what the Old Testament refers to as the divine curse of judgment, of uh, e- uh, decimation and destruction, of, of eternal torment, of Jesus coming and, and, and smashing people. Uh, <laughs> This is now the picture that we get of, of, of Jesus, in, like in our children's Bible on the front with him petting uh, sheep and lambs. This is, this is Jesus coming for blood. This is Jesus coming for, uh, to, to judge people that have rebelled against him. And it's very troubling. Uh, in, in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, Mere Christianity, he is, he's exploring in one of his chapters this idea of how troubling it is to refer to God as good. Because he says, in order to call God good, that means that we disagree, or that means that we agree with his disapproval of greed and of extortion and of oppression. We disagree with those things. We, 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 uh, we're, we're linked in that. 
But for our own greed and for our own evil, our own rebellious impulses, we kind of want God to just make an exception. We want, want it to be kind of just brushed under the rug. But we know that if he does that, if he does just make an exception in our case, then he's no longer good. So to refer to God as good means that at some level, we are warranting his, his, his displeasure and his wrath, not uh, comfortable things to talk about. Thanks, Giorgio, for letting me preach this one. Um, but listen to what C.S. Lewis says here. He says, God is the only comfort because God is good, but he is also the supreme terror because we are not. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. And then here's my favorite sentence. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. This is from a chapter entitled, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. If we are going to refer to God as good and admit that we are not, then we also have to admit that we deserve his displeasure, his wrath, the divine curse, hell itself. I know some of you are probably thinking, this is why I hate Christianity. This is why I, I, I stopped going to church when I was younger, and I don't know why I happened to find myself back in the church again. Because uh, you Christians are nothing but judgmental, self-righteous hypocrites. Hell. Judgment. That is uh, uh, ridiculous. And to be honest, I, I, I'm, I'm offended the way that, that a lot of Christians talk about hell as well. I'm, uh, it, it makes me want to not even take the doctrine seriously, to just kind of write off what the Bible talks about, hell and judgment, that that is uh, outdated and uh, intolerant and ridiculous. But I think uh, if we think about it, we have cause to really take this seriously. Uh, let's, let's just assume, for example, that uh, one of you were to come up on stage and slap me, which I'm sure some of you want to do at this point. Um, what would happen? Well, sweet Odette Valder would probably gasp and be shocked, and Giorgio may be laughing, but, but uh, I would probably be cowering and crying or something, but uh, really nothing would happen. Now, what if you were to slap a police officer? Go do the same thing out, out, out on 36th Street and slap a police officer. You would be immediately, violently arrested, probably, <laughs> thrown into jail. Now, what if you did the exact same thing to President Obama? Before you could probably even rear your hand, you know, connect, Secret Service would have taken you out and wouldn't have thought about it. The exact same act had totally different consequences depending on the level of authority that the act was, was uh, uh, rebelling against. So God, who has infinite authority, what happens when we slap him? When we throw up our, our fist or our middle finger at his rule and say, uh, I'm not doing what you want me to do. I'm in charge here. W what are the consequences? The divine curse, wrath, judgment. And so C.S. Lewis is right. We have cause to be uneasy. Because in one sense, you should really rightfully identify with the wrath here. Th this is righteous anger. You should want Darfur to end. You should want child pornography to be destroyed. You should want the evils of the world totally decimated and smashed to pieces like a clay pot. 
You should want this. This is what gives you the uh, emotional vocabulary, as Giorgio mentioned last week, to be able to articulate that, that righteous anger against these things. But in another sense, you should rightfully feel uneasy because the evil out there resides in here as well. This is not just an out there thing, it's an in here thing. We are not exempt from the rebellion, from the picture that Psalm 2 is talking about. And if we don't first understand the depth and the gravity of our own rebellion and and the depth and and the horror of God's wrath that that warrants, then what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished will make no sense to us. It'll be sweet, it'll be sentimental, but it will have no, it'll not have the uh, fuel behind it to totally transform your heart. So let's look at this last snapshot. We've looked at rebellion, we've looked at reaction, and now we look at response. And the question is raised, what will your response be? Because if you notice, the last, uh, Three verses are all commands. They're all uh, imperatives. They're all directed at you. And so God is graciously putting uh, the ball in your court and saying, what are you going to do? So let's look in verse uh, 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. The author is just getting straight to the point. (laughs) He's saying, heads up. This is legit. These threats are not empty. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) I didn't plan on saying that, but when you're in the moment, there you go. And then he says, kiss the sun. And what does that mean? Well, uh, at first... Some, some of the, the, the people think that it's, it's that picture in the, uh, uh, probably you've seen in movies or Lord of the Rings or wherever you have a king and somebody comes into his presence and he kind of, you know, holds out the ring for you to, you know, bow down and kiss the ring and it's an act of, uh, you know, submission and respect and honor to the, to the, to the king itself. Uh, and I think that that's, that's probably legit, legitimate, but probably the, the image here is a little bit more, um, edgy. Because uh, you may have even seen this in a movie where uh, a king is having, you know, long, drawn-out, hand-to-hand combat like that. And uh, he fights, he fights the, uh, the other person and the other person is, you know, taken down and the king has conquered him. And so he puts his foot over the, the, uh, uh, the, the person who's been defeated, his, his chin, and says, kiss my foot. Literally, kiss it as an act of, you have won, I submit and if they don't, then the, the conquering king moves his foot further down their face and crushes their windpipe. And I think that's the picture. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. It is a um, uh, scary picture. And the call is for us to submit, for us to uh, lay down our arms of rebellion and insurrection and to kiss the sun by faith, to, to trust that he, he is in control, to put all of our loyalty and to swear allegiance and pledge our allegiance to him alone. This is the picture because the, the consequences for not doing it are deadly. You get the divine curse, his wrath. And so C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. We have cause to be uneasy. But, 
And this is why uh, in your bulletin, the sermon title has those little dot, dot, dots at the end. And all of the gospel and everything uh, good and right that we trust and we hope here at Christ Central is hanging in the middle of those dot, dot, dots. Because if, if you may have missed it, it's a little inconspicuous last sentence of this whole thing. Verse 12, the very last sentence, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed. Blessing. means happiness. Favor. How in the world can there be blessing when we have divine curse hanging over our head? How can we be happy when it seems like we're supposed to be terrified? How does this make any sense? Actually, some of the scholars have said this makes no sense, and therefore the New Testament is not right to link this psalm to Jesus because this picture, this you know, has a picture of, G- of uh, some king coming, possession, possessing the nations and smashing and destroying everybody. And then the New Testament gets here, and we have a picture of Jesus who's very uh, weak, very gentle. He's serving people. He's humble. He's uh, suffering. These two pictures don't connect. So how does this make any sense? How do we get blessing when we have divine curse hanging on our heads? Let me read you this. This is out of Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And then a few verses later, 53 verse 8. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. King Jesus, out of jaw-dropping, shocking love for his people, leaves the kingdom of heaven to come to earth so that he would die barbarically on the cross with blood and wounds exposed with half of his flesh hanging off to bear the divine wrath that we deserve. He was having his throat crushed on the cross. He was the one who was being dashed like a a clay pot on the cross so that we who deserve curse would receive blessing. It says in uh, the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, I love it, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. He receives the curse that we deserve so that we can get the blessing that he deserved. This is what we just sang in uh, uh, What Wondrous Love Is This? The first verse, What Wondrous Love Is This? Oh my soul, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? You realize what this means? That there is profound blessing when we, when we submit, when we kiss the Son by faith and to find our refuge and find our protection in Him. Because if it is true that He has absorbed God's wrath and God's punishment and God's justice, then God therefore has no more wrath for us, for His people, for His people that have kissed the Son by faith. As we read in the uh, Confession and Assurance, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
all of our acts of rebellion, whether we've thought them or done them or said them, whether in the past, present, or future, are redeemed and are forgiven underneath uh, the work of the Lord Jesus because he has, ex- he, he has received the punishment and the wrath that we have deserved. And he has given us nothing but blessing and heaven itself, forgiveness, and the right to be children of this king that we have rebelled against. He will not punish you if you are in the Son, because he accepts the punishment that he has given his own son. Uh, the movie The Dark Knight, one of my favorite movies, at least in the past two years. Um, you know the story. Some of y'all have, I'm assuming a lot of y'all have watched it. Harvey Dent is the, uh, he's the uh, district attorney overseeing Gotham City. And, of course, there's this great crime spree with the Joker going around doing his thing, causing this big commotion, and Batman steps in, saves the day, Kills all the bad guys. And uh, Harvey Dent, at the end of the movie, you realize that he is the, the, the hope of Gotham City. He is the good guy. And if, and if his position happens to fall, then all the criminals that are in jail will get released. You remember this, right? He's sort of, everything is hanging on his character. And so, of course, what happens? He gets his, you know, half of his face scorched and he becomes two-faced. And he, you know, goes around shooting people and he he's, contributes to the crime spree. And so it comes down to that last scene where, where Batman and, and uh, Two-Face are, are duking it out and, and Batman takes him out and takes him down. But of course, now, now we're stuck with this awful scenario where here's the bad guy and he's dead. And, and if Gotham City finds out that uh, he has fallen, then everything is lost. All the hope is lost. So Batman volunteers to take the blame for all the murders that Two-Face, Harvey Dent, does. And so he's running into the darkness at the last scene of the movie. He's running and the police are chasing after the hero or chasing after Batman himself. And there's that little kid saying, why are they doing this? What has Batman done? He's he's the hero. He saved the day. He is accepting all of the blame for what Two-Face has done. And what do we see Two-Face doing at the end of the movie? He has his face restored. He has that plaque where he's kind of, you know, posted up and he gets all of the credit for all the heroic actions that Batman has done. This is a picture of what Jesus has done at the cross, where he receives all of the blame for all of the rebellion that you and I have caused, and we receive all of the credit for what he has done. This is a picture of blessing, and this is why this psalm is able to end this way. Even though it's so dark and so bloody and so uh, wrathful, it can end this way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I want to close this way. Uh, a few uh, days ago, I was sitting down with uh, Giorgio last week sometime, and he says, oh, this is a great story. You need to use this in a sermon sometime. And so I'm going to do it. I'm going to steal it from him right now. But that's okay because, because he stole it from someone too. So, uh, <laughs> and it's a story of a, uh, of a hunter who is out in uh, the forest hunting. And uh, he comes across, <laughs> hence the name, and uh, he comes across a baby uh, bear cub. And so he, he, he has the bear in his sights. For whatever reason, he's hunting bear that day. And he, uh, and he locks the, the little bear cub in his sights. And uh, he's about to pull the trigger. And right before he does, Mama Bear shows up and kind of uh, steps between the two and lets out this enormous, deep, rumbling, thunderous roar. 
And that one roar, that one sound had two profoundly different effects on the two uh, things that heard it. For the hunter, that sound uh, was, a, was, a, was a sound of fear and a, and a sound of terror and a sound of dread. And for the baby bear cub, it was a sound of uh, comfort and, and security and peace. Some of you have only heard the roar of Psalm 2, the, the mama bear roar of Psalm 2, and it, and it has left you feeling uh, fearful and uh, dreadful. And if that's, if that's the case, then I want to invite you in the same way that Psalm 2 does to be warned that, 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 this is, that, it, that this is real. And there's an invitation for you that God has graciously extended for you to kiss the sun. But there is still time to, in faith, submit your control to Him. And when you do, you get all of the blessings that He has purchased for you. Some of you from Psalm 2 have heard the roar of the mama bear of Psalm 2 and it, is, and it has left you uh, with a feeling of peace, with a feeling of security, with a, a feeling of protection because you know that the Son has, has absorbed the wrath and the condemnation that you, has deserved, that you have deserved. And if, and if this is true, if this is what you have heard, then uh, this will do two things in your heart. One, it should strip you of any self-righteous claims that, that you have over people that have not yet kissed the sun. This should strip you of any, of any basis of saying, uh, of having any resources to say that I, I didn't deserve this any, any less than you did. Because you know, I deserve this just as much as anyone. I'm just as guilty. I'm just as much of a rebel. But it should, it should secondly also swell your heart with a, with a new, humble, profound joy and an eagerness to want to continue to submit, to, to want to continue to give up control for him, to want to continue to lay down the, 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 the impulse of insurrection and rebellion that we all have and to serve him out of gladness and out of joy. Uh, kiss the sun. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we are rebels.